Hola, mi gente. My name is Jessica Yanez, and I want you to join me for some wine and chisme. The Wine and Chisme podcast was created to amplify voices across communities of color, all while drinking a glass of wine. From wine talk, interviews, and recaps of all things pop culture, join me every Wednesday for the chisme. Please make sure to check out the Wine and Chisme podcast and other amazing podcasts as part of the Latina Podcasters Network. Hola, mi gente. Welcome to another episode of the Wine and Chisme podcast, a podcast created to share the stories of everyday people doing positive things in communities of color, all while sipping on a glass of wine. In this episode, I get the chance to speak with Jordan Hales. Jordan is a speaker and is building a speaking and innovation practice which elevates forward-thinking ideas and resources that matter now. Her latest invention, the Busy Humans Language Method, shifts learning how to speak a language from a technical pursuit to a human one. She is known for talks such as Green Dream, Building Parks for Ages 102 and Younger, and Human Terms and Conditions, Should the Exit Interview Be Done on the First Day?, she is also a co-organizer with March for Black Women San Diego, a march based in Black joy and Black resistance, and shares with me the goals and demands of the Black women and femme community want to implement. This is such a powerful and informative interview, but as you know, we always keep the laughter going. So grab your glass of wine and join us for the chisme. Jordan to have you here. Yes. I know. So totally crazy. I was referred to reach out to you by somebody who saw you at the San Diego Creative Mornings. And I knew that the San Diego Women's, San Diego for the March 1st Black Women San Diego, excuse me, I want to make sure I get that right, was coming up. And I was, I knew that I needed to get somebody from there on the podcast because the podcast is really about people doing positive things in communities of color, all communities of color. And I know that there's been, we'll get into all of the crazy, like there's been certain intricacies, ins and outs in regards to that and agreements and not agreements. And I'm very interested in all of that. All the cheese all the cheese. I want all the cheese. We spill the, we don't need to spill the tea. We spill the wine okay. right here. Right. So that's what I want us to do. But before we get to the cheese, we get to the wine and we have a first. Mm. Por qué? Por qué? Jordan is not drinking the wine tonight. She doesn't drink. It's been three years. <laughs> but it's okay. You can watch me drink the wine. I'm going to watch it and I'm going to enjoy it. So today we are we have a red wine. It's a Baja from uh, Baja. It's from Valle de Guadalupe, and it is Colección Trasiego, Selección Tinta 2018 red wine from Valle de Guadalupe, Baja California. Okay. So let me take a. I don't think I've tasted this one. Okay. Yeah, it's pretty good. I like it. It has a tiny bit of sweetness to it, but just enough. 
Not too much because I'm not a big sweet wine person. Right. Or a sweets person in general. Or, yeah, a sweets person. So Jordan is partaking in Girl Scout cookies as I drink it. And I literally told her this Girl Scout cookies have been sitting in my house for a week and then not even a half a sleeve is gone. Mm, so wonderful. <laughs> what do we call those again? The tra- what are they? Trayfuls? Trayfuls? How do you say I- them? Try I don't know I know the shortbread the shortbread one basically the people who know know yeah and the haters will say we got it wrong but in spirit we know <laughs> <laughs> it's okay at least you're partaking in something yeah. so that yeah, makes me yeah. that makes me happy mm-hmm. I'm really excited about today's episode because this is something totally new to me I mean in regards to, I know nothing, I can't ever explain this experience, right? I mean, I only know my experience as a U.S. born, second generation Latina who first, you know, language is English. But obviously, culture wise, I know what my culture is. Um, I have, you know, obviously, I've been around black people, I have black friends, but that doesn't mean I know, I like, I'm like, right. your sister. Right. Absolutely. <laughs> so good distinctions here. You're in the right place. You understand. <laughs> so I'm super excited to have you here and to talk about this. Um, I always like to get to know people's history because I want to know the journey that has led you to where you are today. So you are originally from Mobile, Alabama. Alabama. That's right. So tell me about growing up in that area and what are the perceptions that you have found that people have about that area that are completely wrong? Oh, that's a good question. <laughs> Hold on, what was the first part? Because I'm now I'm so intrigued on like the perception. So tell about what okay. tell you about what it's like to be from there. Yes. And then what are the perceptions that people have that are totally inaccurate? Correct. Okay. So I'm from an area in Mobile. It's called West Mobile. And to be honest with you, I don't even think I can give a good characterization for it because I haven't actively lived in Mobile for so long that I'm sure it's completely different from what it was back then. Um, but the plate, the pace is slow and the people seem nice to an extent they are and to an extent they're not. There's a lot of cheese maker going on in the South. I love how you just integrated the cheese maker. I love it. That's right. Um, at the time, Mobile wasn't particularly diverse um, in terms of different cultures, um, immigration, et cetera, et cetera. It was mostly very black and very white, period. Um, But that has changed dramatically over um, the past few, past at least the past decade since I've lived at home, and that's a wonderful thing. You know, when I was in high school, um, it was about 50% 50% black kids, um, 40%, 49% black kids, 49% white kids, and then it was like 2% for other. And so there was like a couple of people who were from Honduras. Like I remember one Indian family, and I don't remember whether they were North Indian uh, or South Indian. Um, uh, they had a few Vietnamese families out in the, um, especially in the areas where um, we have seafood and fishing. You would have um, some people who were Asian um, as far as I knew, a lot of Vietnamese families, but I think there's another Asian population. I'm just ignorant um, to to who they are. Um, but yeah, it's uh, it's storyful, colorful, uh, <laughs> all the folks, foodie folk, uh, very very good food. Um, I would say the thing that people get wrong about the South 
is that they believe that the South has problems that are down there, that are down South problems, and that up North, out West, or whatever, our problems, we don't have But you're isolated. Those problems are isolated to that area. Exactly. And it's not, that's actually not correct. Um, What I've found is that whether I'm in super conservative spaces or super liberal spaces around the U.S., it tends to be the same problem, just a different side of the coin. So the expression of the problem looks a little bit differently, but if you look at the DNA of the issue, it's still relatively the same. Um, and I'm also, I like the way you said that. Thank you. <laughs> the DNA of the issue remains the same. The DNA of the issue remains the same, you know? And honestly, I've, I've found, and this may not be accurate for everyone, but I've found that Black folks now don't leave the South because the South is racist. They leave the South because the pace is too small or, um, you know, they want opportunities that are just not local there. But I have found that Black folks in very supposedly liberal cities out in the Pacific Northwest, on the West Coast, they do leave because of racism. Um, and they're not leaving, you know, to, to search for opportunities. You know, so these areas that are supposed to be more liberal safe havens, they feel safe in certain ways, but they still have that same cultural DNA, which is the U.S. Wow. Complicated. Yeah. <laughs> Girl, okay. <laughs> there's there's so much to unpack there. But yeah. So were your parents, like, how did your, did your parents grow up in that area? Are they from that area? What were, like, what were their hopes and dreams and expectations of you growing up in that area? Um, and are they still there? Yes. My parents are still there born and raised. I don't think they had a lot of expectations for me in that area. It was almost like um, it was an unwritten rule that I was going to go somewhere else after high school. There was not much debate about it. Um, You know, I I remember the only thing they said to me with regard to college was, look, we paid into this college program so you would have free college anywhere in the state of Alabama. If you hope to go somewhere else, it's going to be on you unless you get into the Ivy Leagues and then we will pay for half of that. That was like the family conversation. And I ended up getting into the Ivy Leagues, but I made a financial decision that I didn't want to have debt. And I chose a a college that was like close to Ivy League, but I got a full scholarship. So that was what um, helped to align my decision-making for where I would go next. Do you mind if I ask where you went? Um, I went to Emory University in Atlanta. Um, Georgia. Uh, it's so uh, historically black, black college, right? No, there, it's actually, not. No, Emory oh, University. For some reason, I thought it was. So, thank you for the education. Okay, so this is good. So, um, HBCUs, historically black colleges, in there are many in Atlanta. Right. Um, so there's Spelman College, which is an um, all women's college. There's Morehouse College, which is an all men's college. Um, there are several others. Y'all don't kill me if you're from Atlanta and you find this. I'm, I'm struggling. I'm struggling here, but there there are many. Mm-hmm. Um, and then there's Emory, which is the opposite. There, there, I think it might have been 11% black. I'm not sure, but it's a PWI, a primarily white institution. Mm-hmm. Um, and best known for uh, setting people up to go to medical school, we have the CDC, um, the the main station of the CDC, literally right next to um, Emory's Rollins Public Health School. Emory is kind of like the Harvard of the South, um, gotcha. very equivalent to like a, a, a Rice 
uh, okay. University, uh, Duke or Vanderbilt. Like, gotcha. Uh-huh. So how is it going to Emory being at a primarily white college, PWI, you said, right? Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, how was that? Like, what was your experience going into that? Because obviously you're coming from Mobile, which is, I'm sure, and get, please tell me and correct me if I'm wrong, yeah. that it's very black and white, probably the people that you're hanging out with are mostly other black people. And then you're going like from that to, yes, you're going to another Southern area, but you're going to like bigger city, bigger problems. And now you're going to a PWI. I just learned a new acronym. (laughs) So tell like, what was that experience like? It was interesting. You're hitting on a lot of good things. So Yes, I was still in Atlanta, but Atlanta is um, is interesting because it's a blue dot in a red state. So it's this liberal bastion um, that is much larger than in terms of the city vibe um, and in terms of population, I think, um, than many of the areas around it. It's much more liberal, quote unquote. Um, and it was in Atlanta that I learned that I had a Southern accent. And all the kids that were there, they were making fun of me because I... Because Atlanta has a very specific accent. Atlanta does have a very specific accent. I know people from Atlanta. I know that. It's definitely country for those people out there that want to fight me. Okay. But no, like I'm I'm sitting here and I've got this little uh, translucent, transparent, floral, like little jacket on with a flower in my head. And I'm like... Hey y'all, my name is Jordan Hales from Mobile, Alabama. Da, da, da. And when I tell you I got flack for my accent and my outfit the entire time I was there, right? I mean, in, yeah. in good fun. Yes. Um, but what I realized was that there were a lot of northern transplants, um, many Jewish people also that went to, um, and these were white people who were Jewish. Um, who went to Emory and then the black people that were there, there was a greater variety. So it wasn't just African-Americans. This is the first time that I'm really heavily interacting um, with people who maybe were from Trinidad and Tobago or who were, let's say from uh, Kenya or from Nigeria or from Ghana. Like this is where I really start to understand like the spectrum of, of black there at Emory and um so that I mean that was a deep that was a deep education and you know before then in Mobile I was friends with a girl she was Afro-Latina she was Panamanian and she was super cool we were road dogs but because people didn't understand that there were some Latinx people who were Afro-Latinx like like people didn't even believe her that she was Panamanian but yet, you talk to our parents, they, they've got the accent, they speak the Spanish, you know, everything, you know. But I go to Emory and it's just like that. And then, you know, there were a lot of white folks, um, <laughs> you know, on campus. I mean, just, you know, to say that. But I had a unique experience because I had access through my scholarship to a lot of different things. And I was treated almost like, kind of spoiled, like a little darling of, of the school. So I got shielded from a lot of things that some of my other friends who were black experienced there. So I don't want to be one of those people who experienced a lot of privilege. And I was like, Oh, it was perfect. Everything was great. It was beautiful for me. 
Right. And there was a varied experience. For Do you think because you did get a scholarship that they, they wanted, they wanted to make sure they shielded you from that? Is that, or like when you have a scholarship, it just happens to open these other doors. Yes. It was, I don't even think it was super intentional. It was just that in, in the scholar within the scholarship, it opened so many other doors. And I, I mean, so for example, you know, my memories, and this kind of goes beyond this, but Emory was the first place that I ever received therapy. Like I, you know, I made a call and they had the student center and they had therapy available. It was so easy. Um, and I remember there was a white guy who was my therapist and he said, well, Jordan, you know, you're talking to me about these things and it sounds like a lot of your issues are racial. I'm going to be honest with you. Don't have too much experience with that. So do you want to get a therapist who looks like you, who might understand your perspective? He said, outside of my dad being a lawyer during the civil rights movement, you know, there's limits to what I'm going to understand. And I just looked at him and I was like, you know what? I can really go with somebody who can be honest about where they are. And that was one of the best therapy relationships that I've had. And that was because of the university. That is so crazy because I, I I will say one thing very, I mean, there's a lot of sim- similarities between communities of color, right? Mm-hmm. We're very much about the family. We're very family centric. We're very much about the food, about the, like, just this whole kind of feeling. Mm-hmm. And when it comes to therapy, we're very similar in regards to, like, usually any traumas, anything that happens, it stays behind closed doors. Boom. You don't talk about that. That stays on the DL. Boom. And, but then that ends up, creating generational trauma, trauma after trauma, after trauma, after trauma. So the fact that you had that access at school, I, and I applaud that therapist who was just very honest in the fact that you're willing to say, you know what, you're right. You, there's not much you can understand in regards to certain things, but you're honest with me and I want to go with that because I know a lot of people, regardless if they're black or Latino or whatever, they'd be like, yeah, I want somebody who has my same type of perspective. Mm-hmm. But a lot of times we have to learn from different perspectives. Yeah, I mean, you know, I it's so interesting. Like, as I have grown grown up and my needs are changing, I have found that at this time in my life, it is more important for me to get someone who understands my perspective, not only as a Black person, but also as a woman. Because I'm going to have to really specifically delve into that very deeply. But at you never know who you're purposed to talk to. Mm-hmm. Like, and sometimes you're just purposed to talk to someone, even when it doesn't completely make sense or completely fit the model that you thought about, right. you know? And so I think what I've learned over these past, you know, 10 something years since I've been in school is to leave room for a little magic and a little surprise and to always remember your values. Oh my gosh. I love that. Okay. I think I already know the name of this episode just from that (laughs) so once you were done or I guess let me ask you when you were there because you said it was the first time you kind of experienced all these levels of blackness yes were you involved in in black student government were you involved in anything like black black centric at the school Mm -hmm. that kind of helped you realize what your voice is, what maybe what you were not experiencing versus what's out there versus what other people are experiencing? No, is is the answer. I had very limited extracurricular activity. It was a time of contraction 
for me. Um, deep contraction and really coming to understand parts of myself that I didn't know that existed that were getting in the way of my purpose. And so I did, well, let me take that back. Oh, first line on the podcast. Let's, let's correct that. So <laughs> there was a step team that I was involved with. So when you got to Emory, there were these step teams for the black kids primarily, although they were open and you had BAM, which was for the black guys. And then you had Nambika, which was for the black girls. And what does so, Nambika stand for? I have no idea. Okay. <laughs> Your guess is as good as mine. <laughs> so, and so that was my first time stepping. I am a dancer, but I never stepped, which is a cool experience. But it was also kind of sorority fraternity adjacent. Mm-hmm. So it was my first time pseudo going through like a process of uh, being slightly hazed not much like it was like hazing light Mm -hmm. right so that was interesting doing that um did you ever pledge a sorority I didn't my mom is an aka and my dad is an alpha and they were vehemently against me pledging why so Interesting story. So they helped to integrate their university that they went to in Alabama. So they were um, in the engineering departments and they were um, the first African-American male and female to graduate from the engineering department. There's some nuances there. I think there was one other person there. So don't, don't quote me totally on that, but that's roundabout right. Um, and so with the introduction of the soror- of the fraternities, especially for my father, this was the first time that you were ever going to have a black fraternity on campus. And so he really wasn't into a lot of the shenanigans that the guys were into at that time. Right. I'm not saying that this is about all of the fraternities and sororities, <laughs> just talking about my dad's specific experience. But he decided that he wanted to do it because he wanted to help the organization to get established on campus. And his particular experience was one of, he just, he wanted to study, he wanted to get his work in, and he just, he wasn't as much into the social aspect, Mm -hmm. you know, into the play. And my mom, I think she was into the social aspect, (laughs) but she went along with my dad and saying, you could do that in grad chapter, like, just do it later. So. So your parents were, um, like, kind of undercover activists. Oh, absolutely. They wouldn't identify as actors. That's why like, I, I, they're totally undercover actors. Yes, because I, I have a feeling I'm like, no, yeah. but you're part of that first yes. chapter. You're you're totally an activist. Totally. So by what you were saying with your dad, I'm like, oh, he's an undercover activist. You got it. No, I love this. I got, <laughs> now I got to write a piece called Undercover Activist because you said I love this. <laughs> yes. So by the time you had graduated, you really hadn't had a lot of in your blackness or in everybody's blackness experience. Well, it's like, it came from my, like, I mean, you have your black experience, experience. (laughs) but it came from like light social interactions. Mm -hmm. So this is the first time that I ever eat plantains because a friend of mine is from, exactly, exactly. A friend of mine was from From platanos. Platanos. (laughs) Eso es. La primera vez que yo comí platano. So like. Oh, I love you. Like, (laughs) like. So, and so she was from Ghana and then her mom brought me back like 
some clothes from Ghana. So that was that experience. And she like had this gorgeous, super dark skin and she was putting shea butter on her skin. So this is the first time that I'm really seeing shea butter used because I've been using Jergens, a lotion back in the right. day, you know, cherry scent or um, cherry scent. <laughs> cherry scent, you know. Oh, like, give me a headache. <laughs> so this is the first time that I'm coming to understand that not all black people identify in the same way and that there are tensions within the community. You know what I mean? And there were things that hurt my feelings and I'm not understanding why we're on the same accord. And, but this is all from light social interaction versus being a part of purposeful activist organizations centered on race, et cetera. So after you graduated, where did you go? Did you come straight to California or what? Like I stayed what? in Atlanta for okay. several years. I stayed in Atlanta maybe for seven more years, eight more years. Then I moved to New York for like a hot, hot second. I went back to Mobile for like maybe a year and a half. And then I moved to Oregon, went, lived in Portland. I know because I saw your phone number. You saw my phone number. <laughs> and I knew it. Probably were shocked. Five oh three. <laughs> hey, that was a hard decision letting go of my two five one Alabama area code. <laughs> but I did it. And then now I'm in San Diego. How long have you been in San Diego now? It's been a few months since September. Last oh, year. so you're still like a newbie. Very new. Uh, what do you think of San Diego? Oh I'm still discovering it. Um the weather is delicious. Every time it rains. I get upset because Portland rains all the time. And I was like, I just want sunshine. But then I realized that, okay, we've been in a drought here. So I guess I should contribute to the prayers for rain. Oh. <laughs> but yeah, I'm, I'm still learning it. It's much more conservative in spirit than, um, than Portland is. And so I feel like my brain and body like don't even know how to compute what I've been, I've been through some things. I have seen some things at this point that are on like polar opposite ends of the spectrum, but somehow come right back together. Within San Diego? Just within Portland to San Diego, the Mobile to New yeah. York is so different. And it, it, I believe that a city and a space asks certain things of you. It asks you to become certain things, you know, like San Diego is asking me to wear my booty shorts. Okay, San Diego, <laughs> I'll do it for you. <laughs> But I think it's so, I think it's, it's such a unique experience to be able to live in so many areas because you get to see the experience of who you are and how people treat you based on where you're at, right? I mean, kind of going back to what you were saying at the very, very beginning, yes. I feel like San Diego is in this midst of this shift right now. Tell me about it. Um, I feel like it's in the middle of like, yes, San Diego, even though we're a border town, is in the middle of this shift of transforming from this conservative town to this place where people of color are really coming into their own. Yeah. They're really speaking out. They're really like, here I am. I'm part of this city. I'm part of this community and you're not going to shut me down. Yeah. And I like, it's, I feel this whole thing. Yeah. Have you, are you feeling that too? I, I believe it. I haven't completely felt it because I've been on my laptop, like in my room working so much, but I know what that's like, especially because Portland is going through a similar transition from a different frame and it's an identity crisis that has so much possibility, I think. Yeah. And 
I love that you bring up that it's a border town because that's actually one of the things that I love about it. And I hate that the border is so politicized in a negative way because I think it's the coolest thing ever for two countries to be juxtaposed against each other and for you to look across and just be like, oh, those are the mountains of Mexico. What a great time to be alive. You know what I mean? I mean, we could literally, we're from where I'm at right now, from where we're sitting down, down. we are 20 minutes from the border. Thank you. Yep. Boom. And we could just go park, walk across, go have lunch, go have dinner. Yes. And then come back. Exactly. No problem. No problem. And I like the thing, like, honestly, in terms of San Diego, I honestly don't even feel like I'm in the U.S. when I'm here. I feel like I'm in Mexico. And I'm very, I feel very connected to the fact that this land used to be Mexico. Right. You, you know what I mean? Like, I, I feel that strongly. And, like, the first time I knew I was in a special place, I went to a Mexican restaurant here. The plate was so large and it wasn't like American, like huge, supersize me large. It was like somebody's beautiful, wonderful grandmama, okay, had come together and decided that you needed to be well fed <laughs> and culturally. That's what happened. Spread that down. Yeah. And therefore, the restaurant gave you a size where you could take some home and make sure everybody was taken care of. I felt love. Girl, let me tell you. And I let it's, in our culture that everybody you have to take a plate home just like black men you go you leave with plate plate. you don't you know but you go to an aunt's house or you go to your tia's house or whatever and they're in one breath they're like Ay, mijita, necesita comer mucho mucho and they're putting more food on your plate and then in the next breath they're like you're getting chunky And you're like, well, stop feeding me so much damn food. Right? It's like this whole, like, you know, thing. So, then, <laughs> yeah, <it's> just, <laughs> but I, I feel like you feel me, I right? Feel you. Yes. <laughs> it's a situation. So, at what point did you, or what moment did you feel like you had to kind of harness your voice? Mm. And the voice of others in the black community, like, because you've had these really, these experiences that, I mean, you know, you have people who have just are very much in the black movement from the go, right? Mm -hmm. Who've experienced, and we've all experienced things. And was there a moment that you were like, wait a second, I need to use my voice. I am part of this community that's just bigger than me. I am part of this black community there is really truly a crisis kind of across the nation in regards to race in general and i will say like um we had a guest previously uh aurora bolaños who she we were talking about how the black community is so much better able to organize than the latinx community you think so Yes. Oh, I can't wait to hear the tea on the cheese <laughs> made on this. But okay, okay. But I, I want to hear, like, at what point, or was there a single instance, or at what point did you feel like, okay, I need to harness my voice. I need to add to my voice to this collective community of Black people in the United States. That's a really great question. Um, so from minute go, really from very young, I was clear, I was very clear that I was Black. 
I didn't figure out I was a woman until college, really sometime after college. Like that was very delayed for me, which sounds weird. Yeah. Right. Um, but in my household, um, race was very openly talked about in my household, you know, we, we were in, impacted, um, uh, negatively by race, but then also positively by the wonderful cultural experiences that grow out of being a resilient, wonderful people. Right. And I remember a couple of things happening. Number one, I looked at the textbook when I was like in first grade and I remember them telling us the story of Columbus and describing him as a hero and describing him as discovering America. And I was like, but how do you discover a place where there were already people? I mean, it is new to you. Yeah. Maybe you presented and helped another area to that were that they were ignorant of this area to become enlightened to the fact that it existed. And I just recognized, I was like, this is some BS. This is not it. This is first grade. I, can, I mean, I can remember being in Miss Brunson's class and thinking, if the textbook told me this type of a lie already, what else are they lying about? Like, you know, but I didn't say anything. It was just like an internalization. And then there was another time, I think around in middle school, where they asked us about the American flag. And this is this is a very controversial type thing. This is, this, you know, something that really hits the heart for people um, and what it meant to us. And at the time, I was thinking about the American flag and I was like, well, what what does a flag that is supposedly pursuing freedom mean to a people who have not yet been freed? Like, what does that mean? And I was exploring my very real disconnection with this huge sense of patriotism that I was seeing from Southern, you know, Southern white folks who might've been friends at school, who got a Confederate flag sitting over here by an American flag. And they're like, you know, go USA. But, and so I, I really felt conflicted. I couldn't, I couldn't place myself in the Confederacy in a positive way. And I struggled to put place myself in a positive way within the American flag. Right. So that was like a huge moment for me in terms of voice. And Did you talk to your parents about that? It wasn't so much that I talked to my parents about it. It was just that I was very vocal and very no-nonsense with my peers and also my teachers at school. And what were your teachers' reactions to what you had to say? Honestly, miraculously, they really didn't give me a lot of pushback outwardly. You know, Now, there were some other ways in which now as an adult, I can see that they didn't like what I was saying, that they were conspiring, some of them, in some ways to not necessarily be on my side, you know, but on the whole, my school experience was a very positive one Had really good teachers who actually encouraged my voice. Um, and I remember Miss Calvert and she was from the UK. We would have international days. I think that's where I started to love like global things. And she was the first person who ever recorded my voice. And I wasn't talking about anything black. I was just reading something. And she looked at me and she said, Jordan, you have a really good voice. I hated my voice, the sound of it, you know? So I found myself empowered in that way. And just, you know, we would just have these conversations. We would have debates, you know, as students, uh, you know, as an organization. I was just very vocal about, I'm not here for your white nonsense. I'm not here for your black nonsense. I'm not here for nonsense, period. Um, and what I found was that that voice was more rooted in a rebellion than it was in a rootedness. What do I mean by that? So 
when you, when, if I define myself as trying to be everything that white people don't believe that I could be, right, in this hypothetical world where, you know, and always trying to prove yourself, you know, and always trying to prove myself, then in fact, I have defined myself according to whatever this whiteness is that we're, we're talking about, right? So actually, I've moved myself closer to this thing that I say that I'm trying to move away from, right? So in the rebellion, I was actually not being as effective as I wanted to be. And I think as I moved through college in later times, and I start to understand this intersection of blackness and womanness, I find more of my voice. And then also as I did some work that was completely separate from my race and just had to do with traumas that I experienced at home, you know what I mean? Just in the way that children and parents are trying to love each other and, you know, we come out messing each other up, you know what I mean? <laughs> Communities, you know what yeah. I mean? Like when I just worked on myself, I found a more authentic voice that said, I want to talk about blackness because I think black people are really cool. I think the entire African diaspora is really cool. I think we've influenced so many different things. I think our culture separate from fighting our battles about race is awesome. I want to talk about blackness because in fighting the battles, um, we have been so resilient. We've created so many different things. It's This is an awesome testament to humanity. And I want to talk about blackness because we are human beings. And if we free the people who within the varying intersections of blackness have been most marginalized, we will also help to free other folks. So that's kind of a roundabout way that my voice around blackness has started to come through. Last thing, I know this is a long answer. No, 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 I'm so and thoroughly enjoying this. As of late, I'd say within the last five years, I've learned that, backtrack, for a while I couldn't read text on activism or the black fight or the black woman's fight or any type of feminist things because I would automatically get triggered and start crying. So I could only handle as much as I could in a given like one minute span, right? And I just had this sort of very intuitive knowledge about things that came from my lived experience, but also like a really just good observational eye of things. And I carried a lot of shame around that because I felt that I needed to be more connected with the accounts and the stories of people um, who had lived this experience and had more experience than I had. But what I also came to find in these past five or so years is that you can't talk about race with everyone. You have to find the people who can emotionally carry you through the conversation, as well as give you the information that you need to know and the oral histories that you need to know. And I started to find that listening to really tough topics with a person like Toni Morrison are listening to very tough topics from an account from a James Baldwin was very different than listening about race or talking about race with maybe a coworker or maybe just someone on the street or even another author per se. So my voice- There's like a very nuanced way that those people, they're able to really convey, even if you're not black, but hearing the words that they say and the way that they put those words together is a very nuanced way that just kind of pierces your soul. Exactly. And it carries you. It's it's almost as if like, they're like, I got you. Mm -hmm. I got your back. Because what I'm about to tell you, it ain't easy, but I understand enough of it. Like I understand that soulful part of the experience enough to move you through it. Wow. Yeah. I love that. Oh my gosh. 
So now you're part of the committee that is leading the first March for Black Women with an X, San Diego. Not the first. <clears throat> oh, it is not the first. Is this our third? This is the third. Oh my gosh. Okay. Well, I haven't been, I've, I've barely been living in San Diego, not even a year yet. Oh, good. So, but I, ha- I know about this one. Yes. <laughs> my first awareness <laughs> of the March for, for Black Women San Diego. Tell me how you got involved with that because you've only been here since you said September. That's right. So you've gotten involved very quickly. You've jumped right in. Tell me how that happened. So um, I love creative warnings. And I knew that if I was new to a place that I should get in with a group of folks who were like-minded, you know? And so I went to a creative mornings and I'm trying to think if it was the first one that I went to, it was the second one that I went to. There was this woman who is a co-organizer of March for Black Women San Diego and founder of the summit, um, the sister summit, which is called Black Women Save My Life. And her name is Kelsey Daniels. And she was speaking at Creative Mornings. And we just like automatically just vibed. We didn't know what it was. And we went to lunch and then she was like, you know what? Thanksgiving is coming up. I'm just gonna take a leap here. I'm gonna invite you to my Thanksgiving dinner. I know we don't really know each other, <laughs> but let's just see. And so that was the beginnings of just like a friendship, you know? And then we had a little session where, you know, I, I had some knowledge on some branding stuff. I used to own a branding agency and I was like, let's, let's look through some of the the thinking on, on the org just to help her clarify some things. And then she was like, okay, this is your official, you know, invitation. Do you want to be a part of the committee? Do you want to be more involved? And normally I would say, no, I'm too busy, but I was like, yeah, I think I could do this. And so she, um, the org was founded by two of her friends who, um, have really just, man, have they done some amazing work. I want to shout them out. Um, so we have Naisha, who's the founder uh, of March for Black Women San Diego. Um, and we have Christina, who is the co-founder of March for Black Women San Diego. Um, and so she got the approvals from them. She's like, she's good, you know, come on in. And it was just this spirit of like non-hierarchical, collective, action taking. How does the March for Black Women's Hand go interact or do you interact, I'm assuming you do, with Black Lives Matter? Yes. So Black Lives Matter is a separate organization. I do think that there is um, some crossover between membership of people who've been involved with Black Lives Matter um, and March for Black Women. Naisha was specifically inspired by a march for black women organizing in another state and said we need this here i think the key thing is that black lives matter is is spearheading something that we believe in and we get a chance to take that energy but then be more specific about who we want to serve and so we want to serve all black women and femmes across the spectrum every single iteration possible. Um, we, we are home and we are love to you. Um, uh, and all of our non-binary uh, brethren, we are home to them as, as well. So I think in that way, we are partnered in that we share this idea that, that Black Lives Matter, as we 
comically say all of Black Lives Matter. Um, but also we're getting very, very specific and have a different set of demands. Gotcha. Now, please clarify if I am okay. incorrect or not, because okay. from what I understand, there was some challenges during the Women's March in San Diego in regards to working. And I don't know if it was working with March for Black Women San Diego or if it was with Black Lives Matter mm-hmm. in regards to basically Black women not feeling represented within the Women's March. And it probably, I would imagine it wouldn't just be relegated to San Diego. I would imagine it would be nationwide. I think you're reading my mind. I'm not sure if, if you are or not. Um, so I, I wasn't here for the original um, March, so I don't really know what's happening on the ground in San Diego. I can't give you that cheese smack. I can only give you my personal cheese smack, all right, That's for what was happening for with me in Portland. And then I also, I, I do think it's important for us to think about all of these different organizations, what we represent, and maybe some of the reasons why it becomes very easy for there to be friction. So for me, I was, I'll was i never forget it. I was in Portland. I was watching on television the original March, and I was sick to my stomach watching it because it was this feeling of, wow, you all only showed up and showed out because now it affects you. If this landmark thing hadn't happened, this landmark change hadn't happened, you would have still... Meaning the Cheeto in charge. Meaning this person. That's what I call him. That's how I refer to him, the Cheeto in charge. Oh, my God. (laughs) This man, this person, this Cheeto, okay? (laughs) You know, if this hadn't happened, you would have been still been arguing with me on pettily about about racial things. As a matter of fact, some of y'all still are. You know, you wouldn't have shown up because you weren't showing up back then. And there was this kind of call for like immediate camaraderie and immediate sisterhood. And you have to remember that sisterhood is sacred, and sisterhood is something that when you're not blood related, you got to earn that. For sure. Right. Oh, girl, please. Yes. So going to what you were saying earlier, which I really appreciated, you were like, there, there's a distance here that we need to, like, that I need to traverse. You know, there's a distance, there's a process to coming together. That process wasn't honored. And um, so I just, I was so unsettled and in a way felt, I felt betrayed. And then in another way, I felt, okay, well, finally, so what are we doing now? You know, are y'all ready to grow? You ready to do this thing? Because then the other side of me that is like super feminist, super womanist is like, okay, well, even though this is really getting on my nerves, maybe there's some possibilities here, you know? And, you know, coming back home to San Diego, I think there are so many gaps just on an everyday basis between white folks, black folks, Hispanic folks, Asian folks, People, there's such a disconnect that there was bound to be difficulties in identifying, you know, everyone inside of a single movement. Right. We idealize being being able to have one mind, one vision moving forward, but that's really hard. It's hard work, you know. And you know, I I actually attended the Women's March this year because Kelsey spoke, and I realized that even if the women's march were perfect we would still have to have separate organizations that look specifically at very specific problems because they're that nuanced yeah. you know and it's also important to realize 
the foundation of organizations. Why does something exist that's going to inform who you partner with and your ability to partner with them? You know, with, with us, one of our demands is that we are looking to acknowledge and challenge centuries of abuses, right? And we're moving on top of frameworks and work that has existed for a long time and whose momentum truly wasn't just the Trump administration, right? And for us, from our- Oh yeah, there were so many things before that. There you go. I mean, you look at Ferguson, you look at Trayvon Martin, you look at all of these things that was just like, it was like a snowball effect to, so when people say, oh, it was, no, it's not Trump's fault. He's the, the symptom of everything that had been happening before Boom. that. And he just made it a lot easier for people to be who they already yeah, are. Exactly. You know, people were undercover with their racism and then he came, he comes out saying this. And I mean, you, I, I feel it as again saying, you know, I'm not shy about saying I am a U.S. born second generation Latina, but that doesn't mean that I haven't even felt those, those things because a lot of, like you see the red hat and I talked about it before in a, in a different episode where make America great again. That's the new KKK almost. I mean, I'm not saying people are wearing the right red hat or KKK, but the equivalency is there. And I think it's something that I didn't grow up in the South. I grew up in San Diego. I did live in Texas for 15 years, but I didn't grow up in the South and and having, you don't have that type of reference of what that means. Right. And then when you see it and then you hear the words and then you see how people are acting, I could go out and me and you could go out and speak Spanish and somebody could automatically start yelling at us, screaming at us, threaten to kill us just because of a language you're speaking. And both of us have, you're not even Latino and you're speaking Spanish. And I love it. Absolutely. <laughs> but I mean... Just because of that and just because of somebody's skin. And like, to me, I've honestly never understood it. I don't. It doesn't compute. It doesn't compute. I don't get it. And it frustrates me and it hurts my heart so bad. I just like, to me, I, I don't know if you can see it in my eyes. Like yeah. I, I feel like my brain is kind of going crazy because it doesn't understand that. It, it doesn't. I don't understand that. I don't get that. And you know, it's, it's, what I have found is that it's not a rational pursuit. People are not being super logical when they're in the modes of hatred. You know, hatred is a deep emotional connection to an ignorance or, you know, or a belief. And people are afraid of what they don't know. They're very afraid of what they don't know. And even more so, I believe that people who are afraid of what they don't know are deeply afraid of themselves. They've not had the ability to really sit with themselves, their histories, um, and the things that they bring to the table enough to be grounded with difference. Like it, it takes a lot of grounding to be comfortable with yourself as you are exposed to difference. And I say that not even just from a judgment point of view, but really speaking from my own journey. Like I have had to learn how to become more open and grounded to difference, you know, regardless of what it is, you know, I'm very, very passionate. I'm a teacher at heart. I have opinions, you know. You have opinions? Me. I've known you for a total of an hour. I know you got opinions, girl. (laughs) But sometimes people think differently. Yeah. You you know. And And that's okay to think different. 
But that doesn't mean we need to scream and yell and hate each other. No. Yeah, and, and and also let me let me back this up and clarify. Thinking differently is also very different from the way that you think is threatening my actual existence and my ability to do work and live and be a oh, Those are kind of, you know that's a whole but where I do stand in solidarity with all humans is that if we want to have a capacity to really actually live values like it's all love and it's all one you have to do the deep work of the dark parts of you and the light parts of you such that you can have space for which someone. is where people are afraid to do which is the, exactly so how can people get involved not only in the march but beyond Okay, so first let me tell tell you all a little bit about um, the March for Black Women in yes. San Diego. So founded uh, about three years ago, um, we had 700 people to show up for the march last year. It's growing. I mean, that's... And I hope it's a diverse crowd. It is a diverse crowd, but the diversity is first and foremost in the diversity of Black femmes uh-huh. and, and, and women and 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 of all gender spectrums that you see mm-hmm. secondarily of the allies and accomplices that, that come and, and are with us. So you, you like kind of like my experience when I went to Emory and I was like, Whoa, there's like this rainbow of blackness. Yeah. It shows up, you know, in, in so many different ways. And the purpose is to celebrate black joy and activate black resistance. Right. So that equal parts, joy and resistance. So, you know, to be black is not all misery. <laughs> <laughs> It can be a very beautiful thing, even though there's some pain in the black parts, you know, and it's for us to operate as a collective around these four distinct demands that that we have. Um, And to summarize those, we want to acknowledge and challenge centuries of abuse that are still happening, including sexual violence and reproductive violations against black bodies, especially the brutalization of trans women, black girls, all black women. Right. That's demand number one. Demand number two, we want to cease and desist all threats of incarceration, incidences of rape and sexual misconduct, police murder, violence against black women, especially trans women, and deportation of immigrant women across the country, especially those whose deportation may cost them their lives and safety. Side note on this, what a lot of people don't know is that the deportation and immigration issue directly correlates to being a racial issue. On the front lines, it's not only a story where there are just, you know, mestizo or indigenous uh, Latinx people who are suffering from this. This is also a black story along the African diaspora. You got people who are literally 20 minutes away from us. I actually went down um, to an area to support some people who were detained just as a listening ear. Um, and some of those people are black and brown from West Africa who wanted to come to a place where they wouldn't face the same things that they were facing in their countries. Um, And, you know, West Africa is a great area. There's just, you know, there's some things a a single person might be facing a particular type of persecution and they're fleeing. Um, Demand three, in the threat against the human right to healthcare and increased access, including reproductive healthcare, bar none. And finally, demand four, ensure economic justice for low-income women at the communal and federal level, many of whom are at increased risk of violence due to the lack of economic power. I mean, that all of them are, are really powerful demands. And I think there's a lot of similarities in regards to what 
you know, within the Latinx community. And what I was saying previously is in regards to organizing, there always seems to be, when you look within the Black community, you can point to people past, present, and who are rising for future. Mm. That kind of, obviously, no particular race or ethnicity thinks, everybody thinks the same. But they're, like, the Black community seems to be able to easily coalesce and have leaders who are like, let's take this journey. Let's move forward. How can we do this? The Latinx community has a harder time doing that. And that's what we're trying to figure. I think a lot of us are trying to figure out, like, how do we do that? Who who are those people who we have major movements from? Because we don't. We don't. We don't have those major movements. Right now, we, you know, we're always the scapegoat for everything that goes wrong. It's so... Mm-hmm. Illegal immigrants, which I hate that word because it's not, nobody's illegal. Especially on stolen money. Yeah, and it's very frustrating. But um, I love that you guys, like, set your intentions and what you want. So with that, please give the information. How can people get involved? Like, when is the march? And then beyond the march, because obviously this is a, a podcast that will live beyond the march. What, how can people get involved with the movement beyond that? Yes. So first of all, and I'm pulling up our Instagram right now as I speak. Well, I was, but the internet decided that it didn't want to cooperate with me. Um, We can be found on all of the medias at m4bwsd.com. And that's the number four? Mm -hmm. That's the number four. So that's M is in Mary, four is in four, B is in boy, W is in wild uh s as in surprise sexy Sexy. (laughs) d as in dang you look good (laughs) um so march for black women san diego and i actually i have a little flyer here are you pulling out something now more details so the the march is um local to southeast san diego because southeast before um, some of the gentrification that is in process and, and going forward was really a majority Black and, and, and Latino, uh, Latinx community. Um, and so it's really important for us to focus on Southeast San Diego as a possibility space. And so there are going to be two events that are going to happen. One is going to be a, a private summit uh, for anyone who identifies as a Black woman or femme to come together and kind of say, okay, here are our issues, here are our possibilities, let's brainstorm, let's see what we need, like get clear. You always got to get clear on what you need, right? right? Um, and that is that was founded by Kelsey. That's the Black Women Save My Life um, Summit. That's March 7th from 10 a.m. to 4 p.m. And it's a day for Black women to heal, connect, and strategize. And then following that is the big, big day where we open it up and say, community, we're really clear on what we need. You know, are you going to show up for us and, and help us to power Black doing Black resistance? And that is March 8th. Um, if you go to our Instagram at M4BWSD, you will see uh, the link in bio has a link to all of the different things that uh, you need to engage with us. So they're linked for people who want to be vendors. Yes, you can still be a vendor even at this this late moment. There's a link for volunteers. A lot of accomplices um, uh, have wanted to to volunteer. There's a link for that. Um, Artists who still want to participate. I think we are prioritizing Black, femme, women, artists uh, who are non-binary to showcase the talents that we have in the community. But 
basically go to Instagram, click, and you'll find it. Um, and then our website, m4bwsd.com, you can find out even more information. Awesome. So let me ask you a few other questions, and then we'll get to the fun questions. Okay. What do you wish you had known when you started out within this movement, when you started out maybe in college, like whatever kind of that means to you? Yeah. What do you wish you would have known when you were younger, when you started in this whole journey that you know now? Um, I wish I would have known that this work is hard, but it's not impossible. And what, it, what makes it feel impossible is not just the stubbornness of the people in power, but my lack of emotional capacity to hold space for things that are larger than myself. And of course, no one person can save the world, but I had so many things that I needed to resolve for me, that I needed to advocate for for myself, that I just didn't even have enough liquid in my cup to be able to effectively and in a healthy and genuine way give to others, right? So that was kind of like the reasons for many of my false starts in in activism. Um, I think I wish I would have known that there were places that existed like March for Black Women San Diego or that would exist in the future because the reason that I participated is that it is truly a space of love where you can present your fullest self, the magical parts and the toxic parts, and they will say, come on in, let's do this and let's grow together, you know? And like, it's always amazing to be in community with people who have a shared value. And it's definitely amazing when they have a shared value when they're black women and femmes across the spectrum. But this particular group is founded on principles of union organizing, people who are just total book nerds and just reading all, soaking up all the knowledge, poets, social um, uh, social workers, like, like just like good, good people on the ground doing the work. And so I, I wish that I knew that like, even if you don't find the right space for now, it's coming. Uh, yes. Um, what are you curious about right now? I'm curious about so many things. <laughs> um, so I am, I'm creating this course. The name is going to sound a little crazy, but it's called How to Mind Your Own Damn Business in 2020 and Beyond. I love that. <laughs> can we send it? I know. Yeah. Can I send it to a bunch of people? Yes. <laughs> so I hate to disappoint you, but like as much as the first chapter is, okay, now who's minding your business that needs to really be minding their own? Then in the second chapter, it's like, okay, now how can you more deeply mind your own business? <laughs> and I'm really curious about my own business right now because I found that I have been putting myself in so many other people's stuff that just really was not for me. And that I'm not meant to lead by dictatorship. I'm meant to lead by example. You know, like how I live my life becomes the way through which I can really influence. You know? So I'm really curious about myself, not in a selfish way, but in like a deep discovery way. Um, I love that. That's awesome. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, What is something you failed at? And it can be something that you failed at and you're like, screw this. I'm walking away because this, I, I've realized this is not for me. Because yeah. every failure leads to growth, right? Yes. So in that sense. Oh, my gosh. I have I've failed so many times. I don't even know how to count them. Like, I am like the queen of getting back up at this point. Um, my Some of my biggest failures have been trying to be someone who I was not. 
and then wondering why it wasn't working out. So for example, um, I am an inventor. I'm an ideas person. And so for a while, I thought that also meant that I had to be a businesswoman, right? I had to be the CEO. But I'm not built for the CEO position. I'm just built for the founder visionary position. And then to be, here's my title that I've given myself now, the director of intellectual creativity and visionary art who leads out inventions and comedic writing <laughs> in all the places at all the times, right? <laughs> like, that's what I'm meant to do, you know? And so, like, the suffering has been, I've had ventures that did not survive. They failed because I was trying to be something that the business was like, I, I don't actually need you to be that. I need you to be this. And I was stubborn. So that's so good. I feel the same. Like, I think it, you're right. You have to realize where your strength is and what your, where the opportunity for you is and to not, it's awesome to be able to know the things, but to know where you need to lead is, I think you do have to fail to figure that out it's for sure. Out. That's right. Okay. Now we get to the fun, last fun questions. I'm so excited. What is your favorite word? Oh my gosh. I wrote this down and I realized that I have so many favorite words. It's just... What's the one that pops up more than anything else? Okay, I got to give you two. Okay. Okay. The first is berenjena. So berenjena is eggplant. I didn't learn berenjena until I was in Spain. I had never seen an eggplant until I was in Spain. So berenjena was the first time that I had a word that I had no English connection to the concept. I enter that phenomenon that is the purple eggplant directly through another culture and because of that it feels like a special relationship um number two my favorite word is a word that doesn't exist in an indigenous language and I can't think of specifically which indigenous language it is but it's park and so I did this talk at for the Portland Parks Foundation and indigenous woman was uh, talking about how we can really look to Native communities for inspiration, but also um, just what was important from her point of view. And the first thing she said was, I got to establish that we don't have a word for parks in our language because when you live so closely to the land, a park isn't really necessary. Like a park only becomes necessary when you've got a lot of concrete and non-natural things superimposed on nature, therefore you need parks, right? Yeah. Oh, yeah. That's so true. So, yeah. What can always make you smile no matter what mood you're in? Um, music. Good music. Yes. Yeah. Good music sees the soul, right? Yeah. What is your go-to order at your favorite hometown restaurant? So, in Mobile, like, you're like, okay, I'm going home. This is where I have to go. So, if anybody goes to Mobile, they know. And if they don't like it, they can hit you back up on social media. <laughs> Okay, so my favorite restaurant has unfortunately closed down. It's called the Cock of the Walk. And <laughs> they had this wonderful pork. No wonder they closed down. <laughs> the Cock of the Walk, honey. They, oh my gosh, it was so country in there. It was like, it was like stereotypically country within an already country setting. But they had this pan-fried cornbread. And by pan, I don't mean like Teflon pan. I mean like, you know, those iron skillets. I was about to say cast iron skillets. Cast iron skillets. And they would have the cornbread in there and it would have corn and jalapenos. That bread was to die for. I really didn't even want the rest of the food. 
I now want to go there. And <laughs> you, it's doesn't even, it doesn't even exist anymore. What? Uh, okay, well, so you don't drink alcohol. So what is your favorite thing to drink now? Like, what's your favorite mocktail? So I don't have a fave. I just, I go up to the, I go up to the bar and I say, hello, darling. Would you make me something <laughs> delicious, but not alcoholic or something gorgeous, but not alcoholic. And it's fun to see whether they'll like play and like create or whether they're like, well, but child, all we got is Sprite. So it's what it is. Um, I yeah. have a good mocktail for you. Tell me. So my favorite mocktail is Topo Chico. What's Topo Chico? Topo Chico is a Mexican mineral water. Okay. With tahine and lime. Oh, tahine is like that um that seasoning. Yeah. Or, oh wow. So topo chico with tahine and lime. That's my favorite mocktail. It's so it's really good. We're gonna make it. Yes. That's it. You survived. I survived. How how are you feeling? I think I feel pretty good. <laughs> good. I'm I was so like, glad. These answers are so long. It's just like, but there's just so much to say. Like, hey, oh I'm happy. Thank you so much, Jordan, for. You know, I know I was pestering you to come on and everything, but I just think it's so important to tell different perspectives from different communities of color. And I'm thank you so much for being here and giving some information that I think is really, really needed. Yes, totally. (laughs) Oh, this is so much fun. Yay. Well, until next time, everybody, saludos. Thank you so much for sharing your journey with us, Jordan. And of course, ways to get involved with the March for Black Women San Diego. As a reminder, you can reach out to March for Black Women San Diego directly via their website at M as in Mary, the number four, B as in boy, W as in woman, SD.org, or on their Instagram at M4BWSD. All the information they share will also be in the show notes. Do you have a story that needs to be told or know someone who does? Then please reach out to me via my social media channels. You can reach me on Instagram at The Wine and Chisme and on Facebook at The Wine and Chisme Podcast because I really want to hear your story. Remember, if you want to hear more Wine and Chisme, please subscribe. Rating and reviews are always appreciated, and those five stars are appreciated even more. So until next time, everyone, saludos.